the episode you are about to hear was created prior to our rebranding to Foul Play. If you have any information on any of our cases, you can visit us at itsfoulplay.com. love to get that son in for an interview on the podcast so hopefully we I'm are able looking. to right so i'm still looking for him i can't find him i have his name but if we need to crowdsource well but i would rather not this time right because i'm not sure about the the, the father guy. right <laughs> yeah yeah i know what you mean all right so another question is do you believe still that there is a connection to kathy and joyce malecki's murders I do, and I believe that because, well, first of all, this keeps coming up. Joyce did not go to Keogh. Say it again. She did not go to Keogh. She was 20 when Kathy was murdered. Kathy was 26. That was in 69. Joyce was too old to even have been in the first class at Keogh because the first class was... Um, young, would be younger than Joyce. Joyce went to St. Clement's, which is the parish and school where Maskell was the pastor, so her family knew him. And then she went to Lansdowne uh, High School, which is the public high school near Keogh. In fact, I taught there for a while later in life. Um, I, I know that from one of Joyce's cousins that she did not like Maskell and that she and her friends used to make fun of him, like like imitating him and acting like silly. Like, you know, they didn't like him. He could have heard about that. He could have gotten pissed off. He could have approached her, and she turned him down. But I think ultimately she saw something, and I still believe my gut is still telling me that he would have been able to hire somebody who, you know, would do the deed for him, who was suffering from PTSD on the Fort Meade base. And the reason I'm saying this is because this is an awful thing to say, but she was murdered the way American soldiers are trained to kill the Viet Cong. And that is because it's fast. Hands tied behind the back and their throats are cut. And so... It's very typical of that army, military kind of training. And she was on the base and she never got to where her, her boyfriend was waiting for her. He was cleared right away because he would be, he was in his barracks waiting for her to come and pick him up. 
And her cousin told me that they had a routine where she would call from the convenience store and then she would hit the horn when she was outside his barracks and he would come out. And this time, apparently, she hit the horn, if my source is correct, and he went out and nobody was there. So what does that tell you? Maybe the person that killed her was driving. Maybe they jumped in the car and accosted her when she pulled up at the barracks and turned around. She was found on the road, off the road, leading into the base, and her car was found back at the convenience store, which is where I think the person who murdered her left it. I hope we can get the Maleckis to talk with us on a podcast at a convenient time because they may be able to correct or clarify some of what I'm saying. Right. Another question that comes up a lot, and this may be a question that we have to direct to her family if we can get them on, is why did Joyce and her brother switch vehicles? Oh, he told me that. He said the car he took to work was more reliable than her car and that her car needed work and his was just sitting there at work where he worked at Geno's. He told me this on the phone like a couple months ago and said that um, he, his parents preferred that she have the more reliable car, especially if she and her boyfriend were going out anywhere and driving around, whereas his would just be sitting there at Geno's, you know, not being used. So that's why they switched cars. It was not anything secret. Perfect. I'm glad we can clear that up. Another question is Russell's best friend, Sharon, who, again, we had on the podcast mm-hmm. during the trench coat episode, said that she recalled the immediate discussion regarding the grass or twig hanging in the car and how they were tied with a piece of cloth or string, maybe from her slip. Could this be a potential mark of a serial killer, leaving some kind of clue or a signature? I guess. I don't know. I don't know how to answer that. Um, I know people are like, like cutting, people have gotten very defensive about this whole car thing. Well, Gemma, it shows that it's right across the street. And Sharon said it's a block away. And well, Sharon told me she did not see the car. When she got there, I guess the car had been moved already. To me, I guess it could be the mark of a serial killer, but my guess is that Kathy put it there intentionally, or maybe somebody that actually was involved. You know, that takes time, and I asked Jerry about it, actually, after we talked to Sharon, and he said uh, they talked about it a lot, and nobody really could figure it out, but Kathy was very symbolic. She could have, you know, I don't know what that would mean to her. What would a cross tied with threads from her slip mean? Well, that could mean 20 different things. I don't want to speculate on that. So I guess it's possible. We don't see any symbols like that on any of the other at least six murders in that part of the southwest area of Baltimore County. And the police do think that at least four of those murders are linked and are looking at them. So that was the only symbol like that. And just to add a couple things. First, we are going to try to look into the other cases and present that in a future 
at a future at a future time the twig yes i mean it could be a signature however i think more more times than not people see it as possibly either as a a message from kathy or it was accidentally put there or it ended up there from the photographs from the uh crime scene investigators that took pictures of it it's not in a place in my opinion that it would end up there if it was on your clothing Mm-hmm. It's in a very weird spot, and I've looked at other vehicles of the same model and year, and even if you are a very tall person, there would be no chance that your knees or any part of your body would come into contact with where this twig was established on the steering wheel, uh, on the shaft of the steering wheel. So. I mean, I don't see that it accidentally got there. Also, there was no other twigs in the vehicle. There's nothing on the floor from anything falling off of the twig. To me, I don't see if it is a signature from a killer. I don't see why. That doesn't seem very significant, especially that they would put it inside of a vehicle. Most of the time, signatures are left with the victim's remains, not necessarily on a vehicle of theirs. So there still is a lot of questions about this twig. Hopefully someday we'll have a a more specific answer. Yeah, what I thought was interesting, and I just, I changed my opinion about this just in the last couple weeks because of you, Shane. When I was with Jerry, and you guys can remember this from the keepers, he was showing us how he went up and opened the car door. And he talked about, this is where the, the infamous, you know, grass, dried grass was, in my head, I'm thinking a long piece of like beach grass, like I have down here. And when you enhanced it, Shane, maybe you could post that on the discussion page. That would be a really good idea, by the way, Shane. You enlarged it and enhanced it. It is not just a piece of grass. It is definitely something twisted together and something tied in the middle. So I asked him again about that. And he, his response was, yeah, well, we never could figure out what that was all about. But I was under the impression, looking at the first picture before you enlarged it, that it was just a piece of grass. It could have been an accident, but I do not believe that now. I think it was intentional either by the doer or by Kathy. Agreed. Yep. Um, When I did enhance it, that also was my opinion as well. I thought that it was more of a grass type, but when I enhanced it, you could definitely see, as you said, that Mm -hmm. it's like something intertwined. It's very weird. All right. So the next question, are there still Keogh and Masquerade victims coming forward with repressed memories? With repressed memories, well, I there are still survivors coming forward, yes, like regularly, okay? And if they reach out to me, I refer them to, I request that they notify the police who are handling the case, but also to notify Richard Wolf, who is the attorney general's criminal investigator, so that it's all documented. And if they need resources, we've got a lot of those to recommend to people. I don't know. Um, I do 
I have, I do regularly talk to a lot of the survivors who are remembering more and more. I think the idea of repressed memory, if you are drugged or hypnotized, is a very real thing. So that would be a yes. The next question is related to that. And Gemma, you can decide on how you would like to answer or answer at all. But Karen would like to know how many survivors have come forward or remembered the as far abuse. As, as far as Maskell? Correct. I'm going to estimate. Now, I don't know of this many myself. But for example, a man came forward to someone else and said that he was abused by Maskell, but that his whole uh, baseball team was also. So, you know, that could be 10 kids. So I'm going to estimate, I think there's over 200. And I think there's a large number who died of related issues, for example, suicide, eating disorders, drug addiction, alcoholism, I think all related to the abuse that they suffered. Daniel's question starts out as, I read in at least two old articles that the trio at the apartment called in a verbal missing person report. Do you have any evidence of a cop actually coming out of the apartment as Jerry Coop describes in The Keepers? Yes, and that missing person report is in The Keepers. I mean, you could stop the film and see it because I have a friend who's a cop and he saw the number on it and he, he used his contacts downtown and he wanted to see it. And when he got to wherever it was being kept, there is a, uh, some kind of a notice that Gary Childs had to okay anybody to look at anything. So yes, there is a, there is a, a document that's visible in the keepers. I forget which episode, I'm thinking it might be the first that you can actually see the, the, um, the missing person report number on it and the time and everything. People are all, you know, jumping all over the place about a timeline. But I think to my memory, I believe that officer, it's either 1130 or one o'clock. It's one of those. But yeah, it was a police officer came and took the report and left. My opinion is that the car wasn't back yet, which is why nobody saw a car parked weirdly. I don't think they were finished with whatever they were doing until later in, in the early morning. Right. Susan's question is, have any former Keogh staff or nuns or any other office personnel come forward to talk to the police or to you guys? I can't believe there were women who worked there and were aware or had suspicions and didn't say anything, they had to see all the girls come and go all day long. Nobody has come forward to talk to me or Abby. It's disgusting and it's disgraceful. There are witness accounts from some of the teachers who must have received the same letter in the 90s during the Doe Row case. And I have read those witness reports. There were a couple of female teachers who talked about how strange Maskell was. One of them, he gave her a ride home and he was like telling dirty jokes. And I believe that Dr. Urban was in the car with them too. 
and he's the the psychiatrist or the psychologist who visited Theo once. He said three hours a week. I don't believe him. He died this past year anyway. Everybody's dying. We got to get this done quickly. Who said that they were very odd. I also read an account of one of the female teachers, them um, masculine a police car, chasing her in her car. Um, but nobody has come forward to talk to me. And you know, I'm stubborn and they don't like that because I think they're lying and I've addressed it. And I'm told to back off. The police have tried to talk to the nuns and the superior has told them not to talk to anybody, that she'll handle the questions from media or police. And so the only thing that's going to get them to talk is if the attorney general convenes a grand jury and issues subpoenas. And I, don't, I want to make sure people understand that process, because right now, the attorney general's criminal investigator, Richard Wolf, is collecting information. Nobody is getting subpoenas. He has lists of names and, and uh, people are calling and emailing him. His job is to collect information. And when he meets with the survivors or whoever it is that's coming forward to talk, there is a female attorney. Now, you got to remember, they're on our side. This has nothing to do with the archdiocese attorneys. Uh, at least one female attorney, and I believe there were two for a couple of my friends that went down there. They found it very easy to do. It's awkward to talk about. They were very supportive. They weren't scared. They were treated with respect. Nobody questioned what they had to say. Now, what will happen is this, this investigation could, it went on for two years in Pennsylvania before a grand jury was even convened. And then the grand jury is convened. And if they decide that there's enough evidence to convene one, and that's when subpoenas could be issued. And I hope that will happen. Now, of course, that doesn't mean they can't take the Fifth Amendment and not incriminate themselves. But I do believe there are a lot of sisters who are living who know exactly what happened. Um, I believe some of them were are obstructing justice. I feel like some of them are complicit in what happened and facilitated the abuse by um, not helping the girls or giving the girls the passes to go to his office. Uh, we heard Cindy Lovell talk on the podcast about one of the nuns being present when Maskell was telling her she was stupid and would never amount to anything. Well, that's abuse. So yeah, um, they need to they need to uh, put their big girl pants on and uh, you know suck it up and tell the truth. I think it's it's a it's a hot mess and it's just disgusting to me. I agree. Carrie's question is: Is there anything that we can do to help get information released about Joyce Malecki? If more FOIA requests are made, does it move it closer to the top of the list? No. It will slow it down, okay? So please don't do that. Abby's FOIA, uh, I believe it's been almost five, in the fall, it'll be five years. So they are beyond what's legal. I'm going to say this clearly. 
the FOIA status, when she uses the number she has and goes online, says awaiting analyst, A-N-A-L-Y-S-T. That means that this huge file, which is 4,000 pieces of paper, is waiting for some person to take it and go through it and with a black Sharpie delete or redact everything that is like names, dates, okay? What happened during the Obama administration is that the government came under attack for the long turnaround time. So it is way easier for the FBI to get out 10 smaller files than it would be for this one file because it would still be counted as five versus one. So it's going to take somebody a very long time to go through that. She has also asked for partial files. That slows things down. That's not going to help. We have enlisted the help of um, our uh, representatives, our Maryland repre legal representatives, um, Barbara Mikulski, and she was not able to do anything. She wrote them a letter and said, get on with it. They said, okay. That was three years ago she was given a date that, that would, it would be issued. Um, we have, Abby has determined that if other people are sending FOIA requests, each one is going to be um, looked at individually. It could actually slow the whole process down. I don't know what the answer is. It's very frustrating. Um, I do know that the FBI has met with the Maleckis recently like in the last six months, and have been able to give them some information that they, the Malecki family told me did make them feel like something's being done. But right now, it's not right. And the only thing we could do about it is sue the government, which would be very expensive. And that process would take longer than just waiting. This is Abby's field, so we might need to get her to address this. But... Um, it's it's not going to help anything to, you know, I mean, we, what do we do? We submitted 60,000 names to the archdiocese to get Maskell's records. Well, now they've got to turn it over to the attorney general with, you know, just a phone call. So it's going to take law, law uh, legislation and, you know, people who are legal experts to get this done. The next question is from Aaron. How many Keogh students actually told an authority figure that we're aware of? That we're aware of. Okay, well, let's clarify authority figure. I'm going to count telling the school, telling a law enforcement, telling the archdiocese, telling another clergy, telling a nun. I'm going to say all of those are authority figures. Would you agree with that, Shane, or did I leave anybody out? Yeah, I'd say that's fair. Okay. So to my knowledge, I would have to actually count. I know of, let's see, with Jean told Kathy, Kathy Hoback told Kathy, another woman's mom called the archdiocese, 
I have a couple friends whose whose parents called the archdiocese and the secretaries kept putting them off. They made it very difficult for them to get through. We have Lee, who told Father Maloli, definitely an authority figure. We have the woman who visited Kathy with her boyfriend the night before. Kathy disappeared. She reported to Kathy. I believe Kathy reported to her, her superiors and maybe even to the police. You know, maybe that's why the police could have been involved in her murder. She, I don't know. I'm going to say maybe, let's see, conservatively 15. And that includes Charles. And I believe every word he has said, that man is a hero and he's been treated horribly. I agree. And I think that just to add something, a lot of times I hear or I get questioned on why would we believe that Kathy would have been the one out of the around 15 that could have been killed because of the information she knew. So Gemma, a question that I have for you that I would like you to try to answer for me is you knew Kathy as your teacher. Was her personality the type that if she was told this information by a handful of students that she would have just kept quiet? Or do you feel like she would have been one to realize that five students, this is a big problem, I need to stop it? Yes, your second comment. Kathy would do the right thing. And doing the right thing isn't always easy. And she died because she did the right thing. And that's the greatest love of all, is to lay down your life for people that you care about. When you think about people in your family, you know, you would do anything for your mom or I would take a bullet for my, you know, somebody in my family. I hope I don't have to, but Kathy would not have been able to just keep her mouth shut. Kathy was very expressive. She was, um, I think I've talked about the books that we did in her class. And I think those are indicative of the kind of person she was. When we read The Scarlet Letter, those of you who don't know it, it's about a woman who wears an A under her clothing because she's an adulteress and she's had an affair with a minister. And she's a wonderful person in this town, but it's a pretty salacious story. And the, she, the minister turns out to be the weak one and she wears the A for adultery. So. Um, the other one we read was uh, Tale of Two Cities. It's all about doing the right thing and the courage that people have because of love. Love gives you that courage. So to me, Kathy would not have kept this to herself. I believe that she and Russell probably talked about it often. I think Russell knew everything. I can't figure out Jerry's perspective on a lot of this, but you know, I never had him for a teacher. I only met him the first day that we did that filming. So um, I believe in Kathy. And I do think that she reported what happened. My guess, again, just my guess, because of her personality, is that she would have reported this to her superiors. And if they did nothing about it, she probably would have reported it to a like 
law enforcement. What do you just, think, Shane, just from what you've learned about her? Well, something that I always find is the case. It's kind of hard to explain, but for example, in Kathy's case, you know, she was taken in 1969, likely killed that year. But, you know, clearly I was born many decades later, but I still feel like working with people that knew these victims so well, such as yourself and these other survivors, that the person that I'm looking into, so for example, in this case, Kathy, I start to feel like that was my friend and that mm -hmm. I know that person just because mm -hmm. I'm, I, I have to become invested in learning more about that person, especially in Kathy's case, because the whole question is, was she the type of person to go forward and try to prevent this from happening anymore? In my opinion, from what I've learned from speaking to so many people and, and gathering that information in my own head, is that yes, if she had five students, at least five students come to her and tell her, this is what's happening to me. And correct me if I'm wrong, Jim, but that's five people who independently mm -hmm. went to her. I don't know if they knew about each other. I don't believe that they did. No, they didn't. So there we have an instance that five of her students comes to her and tells her a similar story. Like mm -hmm. clearly this is more than just a one-off instance of a priest that has gone too far one time with one person. Clearly in her mind, I'm sure she realized this is a huge problem. Well, I also think she confronted him. And whether that was a smart thing or not, I think she did. I think she um, was made up of stuff inside that gave her that kind of um, grit in a way to do the right thing. Uh, everything we've said about her really sounds like I can't think of anything about her that was ever inappropriate, ever unbecoming, ever not kind. And people, I know we worship people more after they die, but she really was the real deal. There was never any thought in our heads that this person was not trustworthy. If something had happened to me, I would have gone to her. There's one other teacher I might have gone to, and it was a lay teacher. She was my French teacher, Mademoiselle Nugent, and she was from France, and she was very, um, like, spunky and, like, just real, you know, yeah, well, like, she would probably say, well, I'll punch that dude in the nose for you you know, that kind of person. But I do believe that Kathy took in what was being told to her and made decisions very carefully and did the right thing. I have no doubt. One other thing that I'll add is, in my opinion, when I look at this case and I, I realize the emotion and, and learning not only about Kathy's personality and feeling like I knew her, I also have been trying to find and feel that same feeling for Father Maskell. And the reason is because of this, a very significant thing happened. And that is when uh, Father Magnus and Father Maskell came to Sister Kathy's apartment. That was the day before Kathy disappeared, correct, Gemma? It was, yes, it was Thursday evening. Correct. So 
For me, in that position, here we have two priests at the school that they used to teach at. They no longer taught there. They were in a public school currently. The nuns were, yes. Correct, the yeah. Priests, yeah. So suddenly these two priests barge in their apartment. The students, the, the, the kids were asked to leave. And I believe in that moment, Maskell and Magnus probably tried to bully Kathy into not talking anymore, you know, keep this quiet or else. Mm -hmm. And knowing what I know about Kathy, she was probably the type that said, or else, you know, I'm going to, you're going to stop this and I'm going to stop you. Um, and I believe from knowing what I know about Maskell, again, speaking with survivors that knew him, that here he had an instance to where a woman, not only that, but a nun, <laughs> was telling him no. And mm -hmm. I don't think that he could stand that. So I believe that her death was stamped that moment just because here he has, you know, he is a, a priest. He's, he, you know, out of respect, people call him father. And he is so used to getting his way, not only with these victims, mm -hmm. but in the, in the roles that he plays in. So here he has a woman tell him no. I don't think he could stand that. And so I think that that's right. ultimately the the cause of, of what eventually happened. It's a really good perspective because we also know that when Jean came back to school in September that year, Kathy was gone. And she told me that she felt like Kathy had deserted her because when she left, you know, in the spring, Kathy said, I'll take care of this for you. But Maskell came to her and said, I heard you've been talking about me. So we know that he had been confronted by Kathy sometime between the end of school and Jean going back to school in the fall. And, you know, I've heard rumors about him being around the carriage house neighborhood, walking around, sitting on the you know, on a bench, whatever, just being there and his obnoxious nerdiness. So, yeah, that doesn't surprise me. But, yeah, her fate could have been sealed when he realized that, you know, those kids were there. And I'm wondering if they were kind of stalking the neighborhood, waiting to see if, you know, because she got visitors a lot. I mean, we were all, I was there once or twice, but she did. And, you know, our friend Chris went to see her that week. And I think Kathy Hoback um, saw either her or Russell that I think that week. So, yeah, I mean, they were watching her place. And if cops were involved, they could have been watching her place all the time. Right. One final thing I'll add before we move on to the next question is we know from what Sister Kathy's sister has, has said about this, which arguably, you know, her, her younger sister may have been one of the best people who we can ask about Kathy's personality. She says that if everything else is true in terms of these survivors coming to Kathy, telling her what's going on, and if Kathy told them that she'll take care of it, then her sister says there's no doubt in her mind that Kathy would have taken care of it. Right. So, and, and let me be the first to say that I fully believed, I fully believed these survivors, and I believe all of that happened and all of it took place. So in my mind, this is what happened. Mm -hmm. All right, so the I, next... 
Go ahead. I agree. No, I agree with you completely. The next question actually has to deal with Maryland. How interesting. <laughs> so this question is, does anyone actually know what the letter said that Kathy sent to Maryland? No, nothing. And just to add to that, we know that it, this was expressed in the keepers as well, that this letter Maryland received after Kathy went missing. We know that a detective came in plain clothing and took the letter. And the letter was entered into evidence that they received a letter from Maryland. However, the information on the letter has been lost. Right. Now, Maryland told me that it was not like a card. She said it was thick. And the envelope was, Gary Child said in the series, the envelope was Kathy's handwriting. And they saw that. I don't know how he knew that, but. I don't know that it was ever opened. And I mean, we know the family never saw it. Marilyn kicks herself over this, that she, you know. And by the way, friends, we know you all want them to do a podcast, but they've had so much that they have just all withdrawn and um, they need to take care of themselves. So we're not going to, you know, we're not going to be pestering Kathy's family to do anything. Right. Yeah, this has been a lot, you know, even mm -hmm. on you and other survivors. So I can imagine that this would be a lot on Kathy's family as well. Right. Uh, the next question is from Crystal. She asked, was Sister Kathy implying that she could be pregnant in the letter that she wrote to Coob? We have no idea. <laughs> I don't even. Um, I have no idea. I mean, people want to hear juicy stuff. We have no idea. Right. And a lot of people, I don't know if you get this often, Gemma, anymore, but I get asked a lot about questions regarding the letter and mm -hmm. asking if we would release the entire letter. Mm -mm. And the one of the things that I want to make clear for people yeah, I've done this podcast for more than three years now. So I've done, I've done work with many families of victims and friends of victims. And one thing that I've learned is that when you go missing or are killed, suddenly your privacy goes away. And so when we read Kathy's letter, that's one instance where we can definitely tell that that is a very personal letter that she wrote to someone. Mm -hmm. And throughout all of this case, we take her life and we put it under a magnifying glass to try to find answers. And I believe that, you know, that's something that we have to do if we want more answers. We have to do that, especially because it's a cold case. But in certain aspects, when it comes to very personal information, we want to reserve that communication that Kathy wrote to someone else. When she, you know, I, I hate making things more public than what it needs to be just because I feel like it's, it's out of respect for Kathy. Right. I agree. You, you said that well. And the family was even upset that part of that letter showed up in the first article Tom did called Who Killed Sister Kathy. Part of the letter showed up. Um, and, you know, 
the only the public part that showed up is what the filmmakers did put in the in the series. Um, but it was not typed, and they did not know that at the time, or maybe they did and decided to make it less personal. It was handwritten, and um, it was her handwriting, and it, it's nobody's business. I mean, we know what was in it, but it's very personal, and it was somebody who was pouring their heart out and, you know, not intentionally for the world to know about it. Right. I agree with you. It, anything that feels invasive or like it's exploiting her, you know me, I say no right away. Right, and that goes to survivors yeah. as well. We are right. very... All right, so the next question is, can we get a timeline slash follow the priest trail for Magnus? I feel like you hear a lot about him earlier in the series, which is the Keepers, mm -hmm. but I can't recall if they knew which parishes he went after Keogh. I think they said he died in Ireland. Maskell went to Ireland also. I wonder if they had some kind of sick reunion there. Okay. First of all, that's Magnus. Nobody ever said he went to Ireland. Okay. Magnus died of alcoholism. Um, He's actually living for five years with one of the ex-nuns from Keogh. Her name was Sister Nancy Cavey. Now she's just Nancy Cavey. We, we did not know much about him until The Keepers um, was being filmed and a couple of women who were talking about being abused talked about his involvement. So Maskell was pretty much the leader. I think Magnus participated in a lot of it. I know he did, but um, I, I don't know a whole lot about him. He, I know he said the, the memorial mass for Sister Kathy at Keogh after she died, which to me now is sickening. But no, he was never in Ireland. He died here, um, not very old, of whatever alcohol does to your body. He was an alcoholic. They both were. Both priests were. People want, okay, you can go to the bishopsaccountability.org, all lowercase, bishopsaccountability.org, find the United States map, find Maryland, un, tap on the map, Maryland under it, Archdiocese of Baltimore, find his name. It will tell you all his assignments in whatever order they work. So that's where people can go find it on their own. Do you want me All to say right. that again? Go for it. Okay. Bishopsaccountability.org. You will see what looks like a newsletter. It's run by volunteers from SNAP, the Survivors Network of Those Abused by Priests. They update it as the new lists come out. On the first page there, there is a colored map of the United States. Just click on the map, and it will show all the states under it. Click on Maryland, and each state has archdiocese listed. There is only one in Maryland, the Archdiocese of Baltimore. So you find the database of priests. It has their first column is their face, their name, and then it gives more information. If you go to the column called Assignments for Neil Magnus, it will tell you where he was assigned and during what years. Perfect. The next question is from Susan. 
She asked, does Ryan White have any plans to release a director's cut or some extended scenes? No. Um, I've asked about this because I would like to see, I mean, there were 750 hours of film that had to be whittled down to seven hour-long episodes. The editing was amazing. So, no, when they sell... Okay, Netflix did not make this movie. Netflix bought the film. So Netflix owns everything. That means when the filmmakers sell the film to Netflix, they give up all rights to the film. So even if they had something, they would not be permitted to produce it. Um, if Netflix wanted to do something, that would be up to them. But Ryan has moved on to his next two projects. He and Jess just finished Ask Dr. Ruth, which I hear is really awesome on Hulu. And it was maybe up for an Academy Award next year in documentaries. Anyway, no, there's no director's cut. And no, none of us can get any pieces of anything like I would like to see the whole uncut interview of Edgar wouldn't we all like to see that but <laughs> no they told me no they can't send me anything because they signed away the rights whether they own whether they have it or not physically I don't know but they're not permitted I mean that would totally ruin them in Hollywood because you know they're they are with an agent now and no they can't do that all right. So Amy's question is, what was the timeline of Maskell being taken from the church handcuffed, first the cover-up of the boxes he had buried? Boy, we'd have to look that up. I don't know. When, you mean when Brian Schwab talked about seeing him come out in handcuffs? Probably. And if yeah. you'd rather, Gemma, I know that in the future we plan to create a timeline episode yeah. or two. Yeah, so we can yeah. discuss that more thoroughly right. there. We'll get out the coffee filters. There we go. Okay. It's coming, folks. <laughs> All right. So Teresa has three questions for us. Did Coob have both his and Pete's movie stubs? It appeared that way in The Keepers. Isn't that kind of odd? Shouldn't they both have their own ticket stubs? When I go to the movies with someone, I don't give yeah. them their tickets. That's a good question. Those stubs were not the actual stubs. So a lot of what people saw had to be simulated, and I'm sure they turned those over to the police. I mean, I don't know how else to answer that. Um, yeah, I, I do mean, know. That's... Yeah, I mean, it is what it is. Um, that was that, and like the inside scenes at Keo, that's not really Keo. There's no way Keo would have let them inside to film that. There's school going on. Um, in fact, people will be interested to know the young girl that plays Jean that you see from the back, she was a, like 35-year-old actress that just was built small. And I don't know if that was a wig or her hair, but she um, was hired. And that um, the filmmakers based the inside scenes of the classroom and Maskell's office and the hallways on what those of us who went to Keo told them it looked like. They did a very good job. Yeah, they did. Yeah. All right. The second question we already, we already answered. It was about the necklace. The last question is, Gemma, 
Could you discuss how the release of the keepers affected you and others that were a part of it? Did relationships strengthen or did people decide to part ways? Wow. Yes to all of that. Uh, the first summer was very busy, you know, May 2017, that summer, because Abby and I were invited to do a lot of media. That didn't go over well with some people who felt like they were being left out. And that was difficult because I did not ask for any of that. It was overwhelming. I had a tough time that summer, but I enjoyed being able to talk about the survivors. It has been, wow, I guess I could write about this. Um, it's been a growth experience. I've learned to, Michelle Obama is my hero. I've learned to go high when people go low, which is tough for Gemma because Gemma can be, you know, a fighter when she needs to be. Um, I have met amazing, wonderful friends. And because I've moved, I've, you know, lost touch with some friends. Uh, people ebb and flow with the experiences in their life. Like Shane and I are really good buddies, but I'm going to say, yeah, we spent a weekend together, but not what you guys think. We were at the same <laughs> conference. Shane was there and I was there. And so we worked together and we're really good friends, but we haven't seen each other for uh, since last May, um, except on, you know, Facebook. So yeah, yes to everything. It's been a roller coaster. And I think now that the drama and the shock of the story and the film has kind of settled down, people have gone in their own niche and are doing what works for them. For example, Abby's doing so much now with keeping people informed and supporting um, the legal aspects of sexual abuse, especially clergy abuse. I'm still digging at the case, trying to find people to talk to me and, you know, doing this podcast, which I think has been amazing. Shane, this was a great idea. And we have, <laughs> I think we've done 18 or 19 and, and people are really learning who the people were who were in the, in the series. Um, I have wonderful connections. I'm not going to say I don't. And I appreciate that. Um, I'm a little starstruck by some of them, but that's just me. I'm a total groupie. When David Cook recognized me at his concert, I was like, oh my God, my idol thinks I'm special. So, <laughs> and then I got to meet him backstage. Anyway, um, no, meeting. Uh, there's some of you, I'm going to name some of you, Gray Huddleston, Kate Hazlitt, Tracy Espinoza. You guys have done a lot of work with me. I love you. All of you have been really appreciative and supportive. And I'm really glad that Shane kind of laid out the guidelines for the out of the podcast page, because sometimes the keepers page can get kind of raunchy and that hurts i'm not i don't have a real thick skin i'm getting better but i choose now just to move above it or move on rather than to retort like i was doing before so i that's a really hard question yeah everything yeah, that was really good all right so i just have two more questions i hear that teddy is wanting some attention mm -hmm. <laughs> all right so janet has asked what is the most current update that we can give on police activity regarding the case? I'm thinking. Um, <laughs> it's okay. Gary Childs retired. 
a year ago, but is still in the loop. Robin Teal, who was the corporal running the investigation, is not cold case anymore. She's homicide, but she's still very much in the loop. And all I can say is that it is a very active cold case. And she told me last week, it will be a cold case until it is solved. So I really can't say anything else about it. I don't think we're, I think we're gonna get answers fairly soon, but I could be wrong. And I, I can't really say anything else because either they won't tell me or if families are telling me stuff, I'm not sharing that because people ask me to keep their confidences and I do. Right. So it, will, is, it is active. I'll also add that both Jim and I are very hopeful that there is a resolution in the case. So that's something, you know, I, I don't mm -hmm. know if that, if that means that our hope will come through, but something that I learned from one of my very first families that I worked with on the podcast was that it's much easier to live with hope than to live with despair. Absolutely. So I feel like I, I take that advice and I, I use it every day. And this is one of those instances. Right. So we're very you know, yeah. I mean, I really am kind of like a glass is half full person or is almost all the way full. And I've really learned through my life that this is why I'm here. Because, you know, I've had some crap things happen to me. I was widowed at 35 and I don't want anybody to feel sorry for me. But like I had the best guy in the whole world. And he was so cute and so handsome and so talented. And he worshipped me. And that was like a horrible thing to happen. I lost my dad real suddenly a week after I graduated from Keogh without any warning. So what I've learned is that I am on the right track. And yeah, this is why I'm here. And I'm going to keep going. And I hope that people who need help will tell me. If I can help, I will. And I'm leaving no stone unturned. All right. And the final question is from Terry, who asked, where was Marilyn Sesnick living when she gave her letter from Sister Kathy to the police officer? She was in nursing school. So I don't remember what city she was in. I'm not sure where she went to school. I would have to find out. But she got it at her dorm. And she called her dad right away because she had gone back to school after, after they you know, after Kathy disappeared and she called him and said, Kathy's living. I have her letter, I have a letter. And he said, don't open it. Don't touch it. Like, I guess he told her, put it in a plastic bag and give it to, you know, somebody from the police department. But we don't know what that person did with it and who that person was. Like who was sent, you know? Right. Yeah. I'll talk, I'll ask Marilyn where she was at school. I forget. All right, Gemma, that's all that I had. Did you have anything else? No, I think that's it. Thank you, everybody, for being there for us. We do appreciate it. We love you.